Mac Power Users, episode 350, all about accessibility. Welcome back to another episode of the Mac Power Users Podcast. For the 350th time, again, I'm Katie Floyd, alongside with my pal David Sparks. Hello, David. Hi, Katie. You don't look like an age over 349 to me. Oh, wonderful. That's probably because we just recorded 349 <laughs> about 20 minutes ago. So we try to do a little more milestone shows for, you know, the, the nice big round numbers, the 100s. I still have my mug from episode 100, the 200s, the 250s. Here we are on 350, and this is a topic that is very important to us, and I think growing in importance to the Mac community, something we definitely want to give its due diligence and have wanted to for a while. And we're very fortunate to welcome special guest Shelley Brisbane to the podcast, who's going to help educate us all about accessibility. So welcome, Shelley. Thank you, Katie. It's great to be with you guys. So, Shelley, I, David and I know you from the Mac world. We've um, been around the podcast sphere together. I know you from your, your writings and your books. Um, but let's talk a little bit about, for our audience who may not know you about who, who you are. Um, first off, you're a technology writer. I think at last count, 15 books or have I lost track? I think it's 15 now. It's 15 or 16, but I, I'm just going to say 15 because that's not a round number, but it is divisible by five. So it sounds good. Yeah. Um, and of course, hundreds of articles and, and um, blog posts. You were a former uh, magazine editor for Mac user and blogger and podcaster. Um, and your most recent book is probably the one of the topics of, of what we're talking about today is iOS Access for All. Yeah, iOS Access for All is a comprehensive guide to accessibility for iPad, iPhone, and iPod Touch. And its goal is to tell you everything you need to know about the accessibility features in the iOS platform. How did you get into technology? What brought you to the Mac world? So I got a degree in journalism and had difficulty finding work. But uh, around that time, desktop publishing became a thing. And I'm a low vision, a person with low vision. And that means that sometimes back in the days before you had desktop publishing, it was actually a challenge for me to lay out publications in the way that people used to do that, which was by hand on light tables, which is just a horrible thought at this point in my life. Uh, So I got myself a Mac. Yeah, there were razor blades involved usually. Yes, there were very sharp, very sharp weaponry, exacto knives. I had lots of exacto knives, but I wasn't very good at that. And when desktop publishing became available, I got a Mac Plus. I taught myself to use it. And in the course of uh, waiting around for work to arrive and finding it myself, I found that I really liked and could appreciate the uh, the technical side of computing. And so I taught myself a lot of how to not only work the machine, but how to troubleshoot it and how to make recommendations to other people. And pretty soon I found myself a reasonably good Mac expert. And because I was a writer and wanted to do that, I sought uh, work writing for Mac magazines. And I ended up at uh, Mac User Magazine a few years after that, which was my dream job in those days. And it was a wonderful job to have. And so I've been around the Mac specifically in technology in general as a writer for all of that time and have always come back to the Mac, even when I've written about other things and worked on other things. The Mac is really where I've centered my my life and my work. Well, we're definitely glad to have you, and you're a wonderful resource for the Mac community. Hey, Shelley, before we get into the nuts and bolts, what did you think of the uh, highlight that Apple gave to accessibility at their town hall event last month? 
I have to be really honest and say that I appreciated that it was there, but that I felt like it was very much oriented toward public relations and toward making people feel good about what Apple's doing. And I hasten to add that Apple is doing a lot of great things in accessibility. But as somebody who watches these keynote events for new products and how and whether they're going to be accessible, I would have felt better about it if they had followed up that great film with a very quick, and and very quick would have been fine, explanation of how, for example, the touch bar was going to be made accessible to voiceover. And it wouldn't have had to be a even a demo, but simply a clause or a sentence that says, and touch bar is compatible with voiceover, because that's the kind of thing that folks who follow accessibility look for. For example, when the Apple Watch and the Apple TV came out, it wasn't apparent when those products were released and announced that they were going to be accessible or how they were going to be accessible. And as somebody who's followed Apple, I think I was pretty aware that they would be, but I wasn't sure how long it would take and I wasn't sure how fully accessible they would be. And so sometimes the style over substance in presentation that Apple does is a little bit of a concern to me, but they usually follow up with good products. They usually follow up with accessibility that at least meets the baseline needs and often exceeds them. And it just takes a while for those of us who cover it to find those things out because it's not something that comes out when those uh, announcements are made. And and we're going to dive into the weeds here in a minute, but just overall, how would you grade them for accessibility support? You know, forgetting whether or not they're explaining at the presentation, but in terms of getting accessibility features out and the right ones out, how are they doing these days on the Mac and iOS platforms? I think on the Mac and iOS specifically, they're doing a great job. They continue to be the leader. Other platforms have terrific accessibility support that's provided sometimes by the manufacturer of the operating system or the hardware and sometimes comes from third parties. Apple has done a really good job of creating a high level of accessibility out of the box for Mac and iOS. Now, some of the platforms uh, beyond those have had delays like the Apple TV. It took a little while to get as much accessibility as we wanted, although there was voiceover to begin with. So I would say that they do a great job once their products are mature of making them fully accessible, but that sometimes when products are new, there are uh, wet lags and wait times and, and people who use accessibility tools are as excited about new Apple gadgets as everybody else is. And so there is a, a period of excitement and a period of waiting where we're wondering and hoping uh, that the accessibility in the first generation will be all it can be. Yeah, I'd never thought about that because, like, we have friends that that and listeners outside of the country, and sometimes Apple will have a new feature, especially like on the TV, you know, where they get some new feature that's really dependent on a U.S. market and U.S. licensing deals, so people outside the country don't get them. Apple Pay is another good example, but I never thought about people who need those accessibility features get left out too. Sometimes it's very much like that. We. Uh, I work on a podcast called Max Accessibility Roundtable, and one of our members is from Canada. And so we have all sorts of, of jokes about the things that we have that he doesn't yet have. And for he waited for news for a long time and Apple Pay for a long time. And so it's very similar to what we experience in the accessibility community. You know, we had a show, I think it was episode um, 293, where we spoke to a Ph.D. physics student, Chelsea Cook, um, who was a person who was blind about accessibility features on iOS. And um, Chelsea, by the way, since recording that show is now, she's graduated. She uh, is now a scientist at NASA and is doing amazing and brilliant things there. And one of the things that she really opened my eyes to in that episode is 
how when she got an iOS device and when it was open and accessible, how many other devices in her life that replaced that she can now do things with iOS that she now doesn't have to have the specific, she gave a couple of examples of a currency reader and she now doesn't have to have to have a specifically accessible, um, you know, ebook reader and those types of things. How revolutionary, I mean, was that your experience as well, that the the iOS really opening up to accessibility? I know the iPhone and iPad have changed life for all of us, but particularly in the accessibility community. Oh, absolutely. And a couple of other examples I'd give is uh, low vision people often carry some sort of magnification solution, whether it's an electronic magnifier or a handheld magnifier. And the iPhone, even before a new feature that they have that we'll talk about a little later, provided that feature. You also have the ability to, with the camera, zoom in on signs or other text that you might want to read at a distance. So there are lots of examples. And it's funny that you mentioned that because when I started writing about accessibility, I talked about that a lot. I talked about currency readers and navigation devices and note takers and other specialized tools that people use. But we've gotten so used to having the iOS devices that that's not even something that people discuss as much. There still are those devices and there are people who use them either because of a comfort level, often it's older folks, or they don't uh, feel as comfortable with the iOS device replacing what they're used to. But those have become a lot less prevalent, which obviously decreases the cost for somebody who's often on a limited income and decreases complexity, too, because if they're comfortable with iOS and know how to use the accessibility features, they've got that one device in their pocket and do a lot of amazing stuff. And so that's that's absolutely true. And that's absolutely why so many blind and visually impaired people I'll speak to specifically, but people with other disabilities have really flocked toward Apple, specifically iOS, but the Mac before iOS, because VoiceOver had provided similar experiences in their lives. But I think when iOS came along and when it finally became accessible after a couple of years, it was really a revelation to a lot of people who were just like, this is just in this in my pocket is this amazing little device and it continues to get better, I'm happy to say. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing to think, wow, it's it's a phone, it's an Internet communicator, it's your email and it's an iPod in your pocket. But it can also be so many other things. It can be a currency reader. It can be a GPS navigator. It can be all of these other things in your pocket as well. Navigating is one of the most amazing things that it does. So as a blind person, you can use uh, a combination of Apple Maps and terrific third-party navigation apps, some of which are made for blind folks and some of which are not, to get your bearings, to know where businesses are, to find transit stops, to know that you are going in the right direction, to actually follow roads with your fingers. There's an amazing stuff, amazing amount of navigation facility that is both built in, but primarily provided by third parties in relatively inexpensive apps. And I I know we're making progress because those dedicated navigation devices used to cost hundreds of dollars. And sometimes the iOS apps might cost upwards of 70 or 80 bucks. Some of them are a lot less, but Uh, People get upset because uh, they're having to pay more than the average for an app. But when you actually look at what that app is able to do for people who use it to travel independently where they might not otherwise have done so before, it's a pretty amazing thing. We talk about Apple kind of having a, of course, they have a vested PR interest. And and that was, I think, a lot of the focus of their accessibility uh, pitch at the beginning of this town town hall event. But one of the things that it does, at, at least for people who may not necessarily be so deeply involved in the accessibility world, is I think at least for me, it opened my eyes to some of the types of things that you can do with Apple products with accessibility. Um, you know, I, I was not aware of some of the things that Apple products could do with accessibility 
accessibility. And, you know, certainly Apple is touting their own horn to some degree, but I think they're also building awareness. Can you give us some general examples? And you've you've already given us several, but of the types of uses of accessibility features, whether it be for a person who is blind or visually impaired or low vision or a person who is deaf or hearing impaired or someone who has motor skills deficits? Sure. Well, for blind, low vision people, navigation is a really big thing. Also, the ability to use the device as an ebook reader. So the you can read iBooks, but you can also read Kindle books. You can read any number of d- different kinds of documents, long form, short form, whatever you want to read. And because those documents are typically available in formats that iOS can digest, uh, there's a lot of flexibility, not only in terms of the kinds of documents you can read, but in terms of the kind of apps that you can choose to read them with. So you're not always stuck in iBooks if that's not interesting to you. And there are a lot of readers that have uh, voices that are customized, that are very high quality that people use. Um, For low vision folks, some of the stuff I talked about before to do with using the camera to zoom in on something that might be at a distance, either that you want to read or that you want to uh, get a better look at as you're navigating through the world, or as maybe you're in a classroom, or taking a picture of something so that you can study it instead of having to try and focus on it at a long distance where that might be a challenge for you. Hearing impaired, uh, folks with hearing impairments can use hearing aids that are connected to their iPhones. The hearing aids are typically tuned by their audiologists to uh, a feature to uh, address their specific needs, but the iPhone has a lot of tuning and a lot of ability to let you, to let the hearing aid match the environment you're in. Apple has just recently announced a AirPod technology type uh, streaming uh, via this tool called Live Listen, which has been there for a while, but has been enhanced significantly so that, for example, if you go into a noisy environment, your hearing aid adapts to that environment for you. Just you don't have to do any additional work yourself. Uh, Folks with motor disabilities, as we saw in the film at the beginning of the town hall meeting with the switches or with uh, head control devices, uh, can do video editing or audio editing or reading or writing or composing documents, any, anything that you otherwise would be able to do using a combination of the iDevice and uh, the, the apparatuses that they would otherwise uh, use with computers. So those are just a few examples. And one, one more I'll throw in uh, that I, I often don't talk enough about because I haven't been in the education environment myself, but I know there are an awful lot of teachers who use iPads with kids on the autism spectrum or have other physical or have uh, other uh, cognitive disabilities because using guided access and some of the many great apps that are available out there, they can create a focused learning environment and keep the kid in the app or in the exercise that they need them to do. And the apps are designed specifically for the needs of kids who have cognitive disabilities. And so those tools, that's not the only way they're used in education, but that's one of the ones that a lot of teachers have told me that is the most exciting for them. Hey, when, when we saw that video uh, at the beginning of the event and you know, the, the punchline was that she was video, she was editing the video and putting it together and that, you know, you don't see that till the end, but it really was inspiring to me. Cause I, like Katie, I had no idea that you could do something that advanced as edit video with these types of disabilities. And, and to me, I just had this moment, like what a great world we live in where someone can make something so amazing, even if they're, you know, if they do have disabilities, uh, I, I don't know. I was very impressed with that. Can I just tell you, and this 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 is not particularly an inspiring comment for me, but I live down in the accessibility weeds. Somebody had to tell me that was the punchline. I was like, oh, she's editing. Cool. 
it didn't occur to me that that was a surprise to people. <laughs> oh, it was to me though, completely because I had no idea. So I, I hope they do more of this stuff. And I, I, I hope they take your advice and, and go further with it and, and explain how it works more. But, but just to see that's going on, I, I believe they even put a website together on it as well. And we'll put, if so, we'll put that in the show notes. But that, yeah, it's apple.com slash accessibility. I'm sorry. Go yeah, that show. website has existed for some time and they've added some things to it, including that video and other videos. And by the way, uh, I, I wish they had said the URL. I wish Tim had said the URL during the town hall presentation because that to me was an unfortunate oversight on his part because those of us out there who were following along were like, hey, wait, wait what's the link? What's the link? And that's the, the the URL that they've used previously. And what they've done with the site is add a lot of specifics to do with uh, vertical markets, for want of a better word, and, and how accessibility tools fit into specific use cases. And so they've taken what already existed and just, you know, added a little bit, a, few, a little bit more meat on the bones. I wouldn't say that it's a completely new website, but I think it might be a little clearer to people who don't have experience in accessibility. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Eero. Take all the work out of Wi-Fi with Eero. Anymore, everything in our home requires an internet connection. I'm a nerd, and just sitting here, I can think of my thermostat, my light bulbs, my security cameras, even my speakers require an internet connection. And the trouble is, for so long, Wi-Fi just didn't get better. Wi-Fi really should be like electricity. If you went up in the corner of your bedroom and plugged in your iPhone and your socket told you that it couldn't charge your phone because the electricity wasn't good enough in that socket, you'd go crazy. But we've been putting up with that with Wi-Fi in our homes for years. Everybody's got dead zones. Everybody's got conflicts. And even the most neophyte of our family members knows what it means when you say go reset the router. What we really need to do is flood our homes with Wi-Fi with multiple routers from all over the place. The trouble is that's expensive, and frankly, if you don't do it right, doesn't really help. That's where Eero comes in. With Eero, you can install an enterprise-grade Wi-Fi system in your home in just a few minutes. Eero is not a simple extender. Each Eero has two radios inside, keeping your connection fast and everything in sync on one network name. It took me all of about 10 minutes to set up my Eero network. I even love the way you can administer your Eero network from your iPhone. Using my iPhone, I've set up a guest network and even activated the parental control feature, which allows me to create profiles for family members to manage internet access. Eero is like no router you've ever used before. They're a little bit bigger than an Apple TV, but they're white. I originally bought a set of three and I was able to take care of the internet in my 1500 square foot home, no problem. I have to admit, I liked it so much I bought another one for the backyard, so now I've got great internet in my backyard. The best part is my kids love it because the internet always works. Before Eero, I would have this problem where they'd burn through all our cellular data because the Wi-Fi signal would turn off in their bedrooms. Not anymore. So what are you waiting for? Fix your Wi-Fi today by ordering a set of Eero routers. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, so you can try it out in your house to see if you like it or not. If you buy a three-pack and you find you only need two, you can even return one of them. To learn more, go to Eero.com, that's E-E-R-O.com, and use the offer code MPU at checkout. That gets you free shipping and makes us look like rock stars. And we like to look like rock stars. Thank you, Eero, for supporting this show and all of Relay FM. All right, Shelly, I've been wanting to get in the weeds with you, so Yay. here we go. 
<laughs> Let's start talking about some of the specific technologies that they put in place and, and how they work. Um, and, and you've mentioned voiceover a few times. Why don't we start with that? Voiceover is a gesture-based means of interacting with iOS. So you use gestures to touch iOS in, in any case, but voiceover alters those gestures and allows you to hear what's going on under your fingers. So if I tapped an app with voiceover on, you, I would hear the name of that app. Whereas if I tapped it, obviously, without voiceover on, it would open the app. So I, I need a gesture that will allow me to tap the app. I need a gesture in voiceover that will allow me to open the app. So that's a double tap. So what voiceover does is basically modify the existing iOS ge gestures in a way that allows me to use the default dragging and tapping behavior to find out what's under my fingers. And that allows me not only to navigate the home screen, but to work within apps and find out what the interface is doing. But I can also create and edit text. Uh, the vo voiceover has a tool called the rotor, which is essentially a contextual menu device that allows me to add more commands when I'm in a document, say, and I want to edit text. I can tune the rotor to select characters, words, or lines, and then I can edit my text at will. It's 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 a lot of a lot of detail, which is why I ended up writing a book about it. But it's actually kind of amazing. I think the voiceover rotor is one of the most amazing accessibility tools that is in iOS, just because it's such a it's amazingly clever to me. I, I just, I find it amazing and I use it all the time. Was that a new interface or had that been used before? No, that's, no, not at all. That's, it came with iOS. Um, as far as I'm aware, the rotor style interface was created by Apple. I could be wrong about that, but I've never heard of it anywhere else. And Shelly, just to be clear, I, I know a lot of the focus of your book is on iOS, but a lot of these accessibility features are also available on the Mac, and many of them were Mac first, just because the Mac has been accessible for, for years, you know, I think even predating iOS. VoiceOver came in uh, Tiger and to, Mac, to the Mac and was around for several years. And that was actually interesting because I don't think Apple planned it this way, but what it essentially did was open up the Mac to a lot of blind folks who had never even considered it because it was, there was a time where the Mac really was inaccessible to somebody without any vision. And so what most people did was they bought a Windows screen reader like JAWS or Window Eyes or NVDA. Well, NVDA is free, but that wasn't available at that time. And so they bought this very expensive third-party tool that allowed them to read their computer screen. And then when Apple made VoiceOver available, people started buying Macs just to see whether it would work for them. And by the time iOS, which became accessible to VoiceOver in 2009 with the 3GS, was around, people already felt comfortable not only with the Mac, but with the VoiceOver name. So it, it gave people a sense of confidence that when they went to iOS VoiceOver, they would have an experience that's not identical to the Mac, but that would have some of the same look and feel, as it were, because it didn't mimic the way you did things in voiceover on the Mac, but it did mimic the sort of quality of interface. I bet that with some time, you probably get really fast at that rotary interface as well. Yeah, it takes a while. One of the hardest things to do, actually, uh, to tell teach people how to do is to type on the virtual keyboard. There are different typing modes, one of which is sort of a hunt and peck, one of which is a modified uh, touch typing mode, and one of which is heavily using predictive text and quick type to actually anticipate what you're typing. And those are called standard typing, touch typing, and direct touch typing. And direct touch typing is actually astonishing. You can watch somebody tap out on the virtual keyboard without any uh, physical uh, guides, 
and direct touch typing, a combination of experience, muscle memory. I say muscle memory a lot in my book because I, I promise people that it's going to get easier for them because it's harder when they hard when they start. But muscle memory takes over. And then you can't underestimate the value of predictive text, which actually makes it pretty accurate way to type once you get used to it. it now, is the predictive text as an accessibility feature implemented different? I, I would assume it's probably implemented differently, but is it you know, in terms of accuracy, better or different or the same as the predictive text you're getting on the iOS keyboard? It's not really dip- different. I mean, it's using the same engine. And if you are accessing the, the QuickType keyboard, that's different because you have a different gesture that you need to, to use it. But as far as how the engine actually predicts what you're typing and direct touch typing will actually go ahead and try to fill in fill in the words that you've started to type. And then you can go back and edit if it's incorrect. But it I think pays more attention to the fact that you're direct touch typing, but I think the engine is basically the same. And, and what about some of the other, well, I guess just to, on voiceover, is the feature, you, you've talked about voiceover in terms of manipulating the interface, but there's also, in my understanding, a voiceover feature, but maybe I guess it's text-to-speech where you can just have it read to you. That would be separate, correct? Well, it's a different gesture. So, for example, if you have a page of text on your device and voiceover is on, you can do a two-finger flick downward and it'll read the whole page. And if you're in an app like iBooks that is oriented toward multi-page reading, it'll just keep reading until you stop it. So, yeah, you can read long-form documents that way. You can use the voiceover rotor if you're navigating a web page to, say, read from one link to the next link and stop or move on based on the way you interact with the rotor. So you could say... Um, I just want to read the links on the page. So you can set the rotor to do that, flick, flick, flick. And then when you find that you want to go to either content that's under one of the links or that you want to click the link, you can tap the link, you can go ahead and do that. And then you can, you know, read in more detail if you want to. Does the does the text-to-speech voice, is it the same standard kind of Siri voice that we get on the uh, iOS devices? There are a lot of voices associated with iOS. iOS 10 actually added a number of them. If you've ever used text-to-speech on a Mac, those voices are now available in iOS as, I, as of iOS 10. Alex has been on voiceover for, Alex has been on iOS for some time, but the other voices like Fred and Victoria have now joined him. And so you have a lot of choices. And there are voices, obviously, for other languages, but there are several English dialects have have several voices of their own. So there's Irish English and UK English and Australian English and United States English. And so you can have a voiceover or Siri uh, be any voice you want. Do you ever like just because you're reading a lot, just change the voice once in a while just to mix things up? Totally. Yeah. It's fun. Yeah. It's kind of like when you, you back when we all had those separate standalone GPSs. Mine was always the British person because I, I felt better taking direction from someone. I like Siri. Siri as a British male is kind of awesome. It's like having a butler. There you go. I think I'm going to have um, all the email Katie sends me. I'm going to have it read it to me in a very thick Scottish accent. <laughs> do, they, do they have a Klingon voice that you can add? I'm a... If they did, I would totally use it. So I, I don't know if you saw Big Bang Theory this past week. Um, the Sheldon and um, Leonard were trying to outsmart the girls and were speaking to each other in Klingon. And that did not go over well for them. No. <laughs> Never does. No. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about some of the options that are available for persons with low vision. I know that just in my own family, we were talking before the show, I've set up iPhones. I My grandmother recently switched within the last year or so 
to an iPhone. And that was, in my mind, one of the quick and easy things to do was just to punch up the text. We made the text bold. We we punched it up several notches for her. Um, I know my mother likes and my father have both punched up the text on their iPhones too, just kind of as they've they've aged and have needed a little bit larger text for more comfortable reading. But beyond that, what are the other options that are available? There's a screen magnification, which is Zoom. There are several ways they, that that's implemented. You can set up Zoom so that you can zoom in a window under your finger or you can zoom the whole screen and then you have control of the level of Zoom as well as what kind of color filter if you want any. For example, you could zoom and then inverse the color of your Zoom if contrast was an issue for you. And then there's uh, the display Zoom that people don't, people don't think about this a lot, but there's the display Zoom that's available on the larger iPhones so you can change from standard Zoom mode to, uh, uh, to, to zoomed in mode. I'm sorry, I blanked on what that's called, but uh, that and then you have the ability, obviously, to pinch to zoom and apps that support that. So there are all sorts of screen magnification settings. Something people don't know about text size is that there are two sets of text size options. There's the one that most people are familiar with under display. And then if you go into accessibility, there's an additional set of text size adjustment. It looks the same. The screen is exactly the same, except that the sizes are larger. So those are called accessibility text sizes. And all that works on the dynamic type technology. So any app that supports dynamic type will respond to those relative text size settings you change. The trick is that not all apps do. Apple is getting better and better about making their own apps support it. But you won't find if you increase those sizes that the text under your icons on the home screen will increase in size, for for example. But you will find that your mail and your text messages and your articles and news and that sort of thing will be larger. So if you find that the normal text size increase options aren't large enough for you, go into accessibility and uh, find the bigger ones. And that might be of a help. And if you're playing along at home, that's called larger accessibility sizes under the menu. And this is an area where I think iOS has really excelled from macOS. And maybe it's because Apple can can hold the developer's feet to the fire, so to speak, because of the curated app store. I have had a number and maybe, Shelley, you'll you'll tell me what I'm missing right now. I hope you will. But I've had a number of people ask me on the Mac is there some universal setting somewhere where I can just make the text across the board bigger? And I have the only, because I've found so many people who their their hack to this has been to horribly skew the resolution of their screen such that it's fuzzy and um, non-standard and their screen looks horrible and not at all clear, but everything's bigger because they're using a non-standard screen resolution is are you aware of any way on the Mac to just make every the text everywhere bigger? No, your best bet is to zoom in. And there's not a universal font size adjustment. Although a lot of apps, if you dig around, you'll find that they have their own individual font size adjustments. Obviously, well, I say obviously, maybe it's not, but web browsers are usually the best about this. But there are a number of other apps that give you some control over display. But on the Mac OS, under Mac OS, you're limited in terms of zooming in either on the entire screen or in terms of uh, zooming in on a part of the screen that you want to make larger, which is is kind of unfortunate. But I think that the control that they have in iOS and the ability to do that with dynamic type is is a little bit greater than they have under macOS. And I'd I'd like to see that as well. And there are third-party tools that can enlarge uh, your view of text, but I think they're basically doing a version of Zoom 
that Apple already is, is doing for the screen as a whole. And yeah, I've done that resolution thing too, and it, it hurts. And it's, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> I can avoid it. You know, it's, Shelly, it's funny. I used to, I used to um, have the f- smallest possible font size, everything I did, you know, make fun of people that had to, you know, the old guys at the office who had to make the big font size. And the other day I was looking at one of my Hue light bulbs. I needed to see the code on it, you know, the number on the side of it to, to, to pair it. And I realized that I could look at that all day and I will never be able to tell. I will never be able to read it. It's just too small. And um, uh, what about for folks who do occasionally need a little help with getting things a little bigger? You know, kind of the magnifying glass problem. Well, that's actually a point I, I always used to give the example of uh, wanting to see the serial number on the back of the television. And now that's not even a thing anymore because people do all that in software. But um, Apple added a feature in iOS 10 called Magnifier, which essentially lets you use the camera as a magnifying glass. I hasten to point out that there were plenty of magnifying apps in the App Store before Magnifier. Magnifier has a couple of advantages. First of all, you can enable it quickly with a triple click using something called accessibility shortcut that I want to come back to and talk about. But the the second thing is that you can apply another new feature in iOS 10 called color filters. So if the thing you're looking at is not only small, but it's hard to see because the contrast is poor, you can change the color filter. This is also really helpful for folks who have different kinds of color blindness. And you can use invert colors or grayscale. So in other words, if you if it's easier for you to read black on white or white on black, you can use a color filter to do that. And you can use that in combination with both magnifier and with zoom. So magnifier is a great way to, you don't even have to be using it all the time. You don't have to fiddle with the camera and find magnifier. You just add it to accessibility shortcut. And with a triple click, you're in it. People can use it for certainly, you you have the ability to change the magnification level. You have the ability to do a freeze frame on what you're looking at. So you don't have to hold that light bulb steady. You can freeze frame it and then write it down, put it in an email, whatever it is you need to do with that serial number information. It won't directly let you save the image, which is kind of unfortunate. And some other magnification apps let you do that. But you can always take a picture of it in camera and then save it to in whatever way you want. It's a great feature. Yeah, there are um, also a number of features available um, for the hearing impaired or people with with hearing difficulties. I remember a a good friend of mine back when back in the day of the flip phone and when you didn't have umpteen thousand ringtone choices, you know, you used to be limited to just a few and she would always have her phone on vibrate because as we all know now, vibrate is not silent. Um, everybody can, you can, <laughs> not everybody, but many people can hear your phone vibrating and she would always have her phone on vibrate because she could hear that pitch or that tone, but not necessarily the the pitch that is available on the particular ringtone of her phone. Now we have much more options and wide ranges of ringtones, uh, but we also have a lot of other options uh, available for people as well. First of all, you can replace your ringtone with a vibration for all the alerts that your phone does. So both ringtones, text tones, um, any other alerts that you need you can turn them into vibrations. You can even go so far as creating custom vibrations. There are a lot of vibrations that are available to you. You can have the SOS tone or you can have, you know, three longs and a short or whatever set you like. Or you can also make your own, which is super nerdy and super geeky, but it's kind of fun, I guess. My personal favorite being the Imperial March that I have created um, for <laughs> certain people that I can tell instantly when they call. But you can ta- you can tap out the Imperial March and save it as a custom vibration. If you haven't done so, I encourage you to do so. 
There you go. Another thing you can do is turn is use an LED whenever you have an alert. So your phone will flash instead of ringing or in addition to ringing. You can use all these things in combination. So if just vibrations or just LED alerts is what you want to do, that's great. Or if you want to have a ringtone in combination, you can do that. And um, that's on some of these, uh, the vibrations and the LED ringtones obviously are limited to the iPhone. Uh, the, the other tools for hearing impaired folks are available on the iPad, but uh, you got to have a flash and you got to be able to do vibrations on the iPhone, which is, that's the only unfortunate thing. You can't take a FaceTime call with a vibration on your iPad, unfortunately. How is the uh, iPhone doing with TTY support? Apple has always supported TTY with the iPhone. You had to buy a hardware dongle. For folks that don't know, a TTY is a hardware device that allows, the TDD is actually the name of the machine, uh, that allows folks who are deaf or hearing impaired to connect that device to their phone and then communicate often with, uh, say, a government agency or a business who is also equipped with a TDD, TDD machine, and they can type out and communicate with one another. They also use a tool called Relay so that if you don't, if you have a TDD machine, but the person you're communicating with doesn't, you can type out your message and then a relay operator will communicate it with the other party. But uh, now in iOS 10, we have software TTY, which is a lot like text messaging. Essentially, you can communicate with TTY devices from your phone. You don't have to have a TDD machine or buy the hardware adapter for your phone. You can just uh, use software TTY to communicate with somebody else who who also has any sort of TDD. You don't have to have software TTY on the other end. You just have to have a TDD compatible device. That seems like it makes a lot of sense because we already know how to text. So just make it compatible with the system. Sure. And my understanding is that there are uh, abbreviations and just as in, in text, there's a nomenclature that we're all generally familiar with. My understanding is that there's a language in TTY communication that people are familiar with and that the iOS TTY support is friendly to that. I haven't actually worked with that a great deal, but I think that's that's pretty cool because it allows people who've used TD, TDD stuff for a long time to continue in an environment that's comfortable for them. It's, it's easy to be, um, you know, kind of sarcastic about these big multi-billion dollar companies, but I've been told by several friends that work at Apple that this accessibility stuff is a big deal and they really want to get it right. They have really been doing it for a long time and have done it on a number of fronts. And I will say, just as a matter of being somebody who, you know, opens the new box, the shiny toy, it's the, the, the figurative box, because it's usually the software, not the hardware, that they are capable of surprising me. There are things that I get from them that I don't know I wanted, like color filters. The magnifier thing I laughed at when they came up with, because I was like, well, there's 10 magnifier apps and I have a perfectly good one that I like. Why do we need to do that? But they don't have color filters. And color filters are great. As I say, if you're colorblind or if like me, contrast is an issue. So I really like a dark background with light text and I use invert colors all the time. But color modes is a color filters is another way for me to do that. And it's something that I didn't know I wanted, but I'm sure that a lot of other folks with low vision gave them feedback and that's why we have it. And also you can access it with a triple tap to the button. And if you're having trouble seeing the screen, that, you know, that really helps. Well, let me tell you about Accessibility Shortcut. It's one of my favorites. Um, So for Accessibility Shortcut, generally speaking, allows you to turn on one or more accessibility features with a triple tap. So the default mode would be that you would choose your typical accessibility feature, let's say it's voiceover, and you would triple tap and that would activate it. But let's say you want more than one accessibility feature available to you. I might use voiceover and uh, invert colors. 
So I can put both of those things on a menu. So when I triple tap, I see voiceover and I see invert colors, and then I can choose the one that I want to use. I can use both, but the menu gives me the ability to choose. And magnifier is available on that uh, menu. There are a switch control is available. There are a number of others. One of the greatest things that they did, I believe, in iOS 9 was they made voiceover the the default triple tap behavior. So if I walk into an Apple store and pick up a new phone, I can triple tap it and I'm immediately in voiceover. Before, I had to get sighted assistance if I was completely blind to go into settings, accessibility, voiceover, turn voiceover on, and then I was in voiceover. But now... All I have to do is triple tap by default. And I can change that default behavior, but it means I can walk into any Apple store and see what's new without having to even get a salesperson's assistant. And then when I'm done, I can triple tap and return it to its default state. You were talking a little bit about uh, guided access earlier when you were talking specifically about how teachers were using it in schools, particularly with students with autism. And I hesitate to admit, I've never really understood what guided access does. I know people have used it like as a hack for putting your iPads in kiosk mode and those types of things. But I don't really understand it as an accessibility feature. So help help educate me and other people as to guided access and, and what that does. Guided access basically exists to limit access to a certain aspect of your device. So you can choose to limit it to one app. You can disable the home button. You can disable the volume buttons. You can disable the sleep-wake button in any combination of those features that you want available and not available. So it's perfect for kiosk mode. That's, I think, the way a lot of people think about guided access. But what it allows you to do as an educator is like, let's say you have a, a unit that is in an app or maybe you have an iBook that you want a student to read, but you don't want them either to get out of the app or to go to a part of the app that's not part of what they're doing. So let's say you have them reading in iBooks and you want them to be able to turn the page, but you don't want them to be able to go up one level to the table of contents or switch iBooks. You can mask off the menu bar so that that's not available to them, but they still have the ability to turn the page. So you mask off the menu bar, maybe you turn off the home button. You can control how much access a person has within uh, within iOS. You can use a passcode that's specific to that app. So, for example, if I have several apps that I work with in my class, I can create guided access settings for each. And then when I want to enable guided access, I can either use accessibility shortcut or I can just open up the app and I'll be presented with a passcode. And then the guided access settings that I've previously set will already be invoked. I, you know, another use for that, I, a similar use, I guess I would say over the summer we had, um, for a period of time, we were babysitting my five-year-old nephew and he really likes to have lightsaber battles with his uncle and I do too, but you know, I got to work and, and he had to do his phonics, you know, so we have the phonics app on the iPad and I would put it in guided access for him and set the kitchen timer. It's amazing how kids react to kitchen timers, by the way. <laughs> But but you put it in guided access and it was great because, you know, he's working in his phonics app and he can't get out of it. You know, he tried, you know, of course, hit the home button, the usual. I mean, kids are smart. They figure out very quickly how to get out of apps. But but it's very useful in that context as well. It's really easy to set up, too. I thought when I first started looking at it that it might actually be kind of complicated to figure out how to do it. But it's it's a very straightforward interface and you kind of set it and forget it. And that's one of the the great things about it. It's something that feature that doesn't get updated a lot. Apple will add a couple little things to it in each new iOS, but pretty much it's there and it works. 
And um, so I, I think that's why a lot of educators like it so well. Yeah, and, and in that one, uh, on that iPad, I, I mapped it to the triple tap button. So it was it was the accessibility access. I forget what the guided, uh, what, what's the use for that button. But if you triple tap the home button, you would get. Yeah, the accessibility shortcut. Yes. And so for David's nephew, how do you get out of guided access? Well, you then you triple tap again and then you just try. That's all you have to do is triple tap it. Well, no, that's not all you do. But then it opens up a menu where you can type in a password. Yeah. And then you put in a password. I'm I'm going to help him. I'm going to help him out there for a small fee, David. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then you're going to teach him how to do uh, Klingon or vibrations for the Imperial March. And uh... <laughs> there you go. All right. What what haven't we covered yet in terms of new support for accessibility? I think we uh, switch control, I think, is one that we haven't talked about and, and some of the touch related features. Yeah, switch control is not new. And, and in fact, the motor disability related stuff in iOS 10 has not been updated a great deal. But switch control continues to be awesome, kind of in the same way that voiceover is awesome. And in fact, they they behave the same similarly. And you can think of them as a similar tool because Switch control takes control of the iOS device gesturing system and gives it over to a hardware switch. There are three kinds of switches that are supported. You can use a switch that is actually the iOS device screen. You can use the camera as a switch or what's most common is a series of hardware switches. So a user might have a hub that is connected to switches. And and by switch, what I basically mean is a button. So a a switch will have one or two buttons, and you can use several switches with your iOS device, and you can program each switch to perform a function. So one switch might be a tap, one switch might be a left swipe, one switch might be a right swipe. And typically what happens is that whoever uh, provides the switch to the user will configure it with iOS to meet that user's needs and they take care of the physical placement and they take care of its internet, how it's connected with the iPad. And often there's a stand that the iPad sits on so that it's easily visible to the user. And there might be a strap so that the person can hold it if they have limited motor abilities. So what switch control settings allow you to do is configure what the switch does and what the behavior is. So if I turn switch control on, the scanning process starts. And then when we read, when the thing that I want to click or tap or swipe on is selected, then I activate the switch and it causes it to take effect. So it's like voiceover in the effect in the sense that something other than a single tap is controlling iOS. And and if a thing is compatible with voiceover, it's going to be compatible with switch control. And the reverse is also true. But I'm actually really amazed by what people can do in terms of leveraging multiple switches with switch control, which is why often professionals are the ones who configure it, but they create a custom rig for somebody. I The first iPad Pro I ever got my hands on was at a, a demo of switch control, and what they had done was put it in this ruggedized case with a strap on the back of it, and then they connect it to a stand that somebody can have on their wheelchair or on a table, and then they have a series of switches that are connected either via USB or Bluetooth, and those switches have been configured to meet that individual user's need needs. And it's, it's pretty awesome. It is. I mean, that's how you, that's how it was just to you. It was natural that that video was edited, you know, and it was a surprise to me from the video. My guess is that that video uses the, the one real new switch related feature in iOS called dwell. Dwell is what makes it possible for people to have head board-mounted devices, which I believe that's what that film editor was using. And so they didn't really say, hey, this is brand new in iOS 10 and switches have been around for a while. But Dwell gives you access to more kinds of devices. 
And that is Mac specific. It's not iOS specific. I had thought that Dwell was coming to iOS, but I don't think that's, it's not here yet. But you do have access with iOS to uh, switches and then also touch accommodation, uh, which allows you to, even if you're not using switches, adjust gesturing uh, with a menu so that, for example, maybe you can touch the screen, but you're not capable of doing a flick or you're not capable of doing a hard press for 3D touch, well, you can use touch accommodation to map buttons to those functions that your fingers are not capable of doing. And you can also create shortcuts for yourself so that you have a menu of options that are available all on the home screen that, uh, for example, like maybe you're browsing in Safari and you have a series of touch accommodation options up on the screen in front of you and one says go to the next link and one says go to the next page. It essentially... All of those options are gathered for you in one place instead of making you have to go to multiple um, menu locations or having to pull down a menu or any, any function that might be difficult for you physically. I want to thank our next sponsor, and that is Daylight by Market Circle. You can save 50% on your first monthly subscription of Daylight by mentioning that you heard it on this podcast. So running a small business is exciting and fun. That is until you end up doing all of the busy work and you never have time to actually do the work work that you're supposed to be doing. You have so much work to do that you don't actually know where to start and your days get eaten up by emails and things start slipping through the cracks. I'm two months into my own small business and I am really starting to feel like sometimes I'm just treading water trying to deal with all the day-to-day stuff of managing my business. And if you feel like this and that you're spinning your wheels and not getting ahead, you really need to try Daylight. Daylight is a business productivity app for the Mac iPad and iPhone. Imagine like getting a reminder to follow up with a client on a particular day and then in one click being able to see all of your past emails, meeting notes and call notes and even emails exchanged between the client and other people on your team. That is what Daylight does. Imagine knowing the status of every project and being able to filter them by priority or next task that needs to be done. That's what Daylight does. Imagine knowing exactly how many new business opportunities you have in the pipeline and at what stage each one is in. That's what Daylight does. Daylight organizes your contacts, projects, business opportunities, tasks, emails, notes, and calendar all in one app. Everything is shared with your team so everyone is kept in the loop. Businesses that use Daylight say it's the app that you use after you have tried all other project management systems, CRMs, and to-do apps out there. Daylight is used by consultants, lawyers, photographers, real estate agents, and others all over the world to help you organize your small business and increase efficiency. If you're looking to grow your business and increase productivity, visit marketcircle.com slash daylight, that's D-A-Y-L-I-T-E, to try Daylight for free for 30 days. And be sure you let them know that you heard about Daylight through Mac Power users to get a 50% discount on your first monthly subscription. So you can get back to doing the work that you love. Try Daylight today and you'll wonder how you ever ran your business without it. Thanks to Market Circle and Daylight for their kind support of Mac Power users. One of the features that uh, we saw come in with iOS is 3D touch support for Braille. How does that work? So Braille displays, I'm not sure if you're familiar with what a Braille display is, but it allows you, uh, and, and a lot of a lot of blind folks use these devices and a lot of deafblind folks use these devices. So imagine, if you will, somebody who has neither sight or vision, or neither sight or hearing, 
but wants to use iOS. Well, if they have a Braille display that's connected via Bluetooth to their device, they can feel Braille dots on a 20 or 40 cell line of, uh, of, of Braille text. And those Braille dots correspond, to, they, they speak the iOS interface. So it might say double tap, might say mail, double tap to open. So you would hear that with voiceover, but if you have a Braille connect, Braille, but if you have a Braille display connected, then that will also be written out in Braille for you. So the other thing you can do with a Braille display, in addition to controlling the interface and having the voiceover commands read out to you in Braille, is that you can actually uh, create documents and edit them just as you would with iOS and voiceover. And the Braille display is your keyboard. So if you type in Braille, it is converted into text. So that's a long explanation. Braille displays have been available for iOS for a number of years. Apple supports something like 70 different manufacturer, different different uh, devices. But 3D Touch for Braille is new in iOS 10. Obviously, we got 3D Touch in iOS 9, but it wasn't available in Braille. And the reason I wanted to highlight that feature is that's an example of something where accessibility support was not instant for a new iOS feature. And it's not so much a, a complaint as an explanation that uh, 3D Touch came to the top end of the, the phones, but it wasn't available to most iOS users, neither was it available to people who use Braille displays. And now there is a Braille command that is the equivalent of 3D Touch. So when you invoke that command on your Braille display, the display also shows you the 3D Touch menu that you would see on the iOS screen. It's also read out by voiceover, by the way. I, okay, I, that makes more sense because I was thinking... Is there a way they can simulate the the touch of Braille with three? I mean, <laughs> it didn't make sense what I was thinking. But, it's just okay. it's just making a feature that was already available to VoiceOver available on the Braille display. And so what what essentially happens is they create a new command, and the command it's just like keyboard shortcuts. It's uh, you type uh, a Braille is a six or eight dot cell, and so you type a couple of dots in combination with the space bar, and that creates a keyboard shortcut. So now there's a 3D touch keyboard shortcut for a Braille display. And, and I know another new feature is the hearing aid streaming using the AirPod technology. Yeah, we talked about that a little earlier. And again, hearing aid uh, support has been around for iOS for quite some time. And Apple, to make this work, has worked sp- directly with hearing aid manufacturers. So not all hearing aids are iOS compatible, but the ones that are compatible are really compatible. And the the new live listen technology is what we were talking about earlier in terms of the ability to customize how the hearing aid behaves in a different environment and also the ability to uh, just stream more intelligently and to respond to what you do with your iOS device similar to uh, the way the AirPods work. And I'm a little unclear as to whether that's a 10.1 feature because there was some promotion of that feature just this week. And I hadn't really read about that on the various lists of iOS 10 features at launch. So I'm unclear when that became available, but I know it's available now and it's it's pretty nifty. We've talked about several of these being relatively new developments, either with iOS 10 or in the last couple of releases of, of iOS I know accessibility really became a feature with the iPhone. Did you say the 3G or the 3GS? 3GS. 3GS. So how how is Apple continuing to evolve it? Do these things, you know, was it fairly feature complete with the 3GS and they're they're dribbling out a few additional features here and there? Or are they, is this something they're continuing to innovate on pretty regularly with every version of the EOS? 
The 3GS had voiceover and some rudimentary Zoom capabilities, and so it was great if you were a voiceover user, but it really had not gone very far. For example, hearing aid support came with the 4S, and uh, a lot of the better low vision features and contrast features, frankly, were iOS 7 related. They were both parts of iOS 7 and also responses to some of the problems with iOS 7. Because if you'll remember in iOS 7, we had this transparent, hard-to-read interface that nobody particularly liked, and people with low vision liked it least of all. And so there were some tweaks to features like button shapes and on-off labels, which I can talk a little bit about, that were made in response to the style changes that had been made in iOS 7. And now I think the, the rate of innovation has slowed just because there's so much there, but I think we are seeing solid changes made every every iOS version. And macOS is a little slower because even though it doesn't have all of the features of iOS, the things that are there are pretty stable and pretty solid. And obviously, watch and, and tvOS are fairly new. tvOS had a fairly substantial uh, low vision upgrade this summer with, was it 3.0? And um, the watch out of the gate came out pretty good, pretty well with uh, voiceover and with some with Zoom features. And um, they recently innovated the uh, wheelchair-based workouts in uh, watchOS 3, which was pretty awesome. And so, as I say, they're still capable of surprising me. And I always think, well, we've got most of what we need. Obviously, we want to squash bugs and we want to be more compatible with new accessories as they come out. But they continue to add little things and make little tweaks to the basic operating system that, that make it more accessible with each release. We've talked a lot about Apple. How are the app developers doing in supporting accessibility features? A lot of app developers do a great job. A lot of them, I think, fall into accessibility, and then there are those that are recalcitrant. In order to support accessibility, and I'm going to talk specifically about voiceover slash switch control because those are the, the best examples, you need to provide accessibility tags and you need to label all the items in your interface. And if you do that, you've gone a long way toward making your app accessible. And Apple has accessibility sessions at every WWDC, which actually are some of the best ways to find out about new accessibility features. Those are great sessions. And if you want to see an example, what they always do is for the main macOS and iOS accessibility session, they build a demo app right there live and you can watch them make this cool thing and show how to how they add accessibility labels. And I think the message they try to give to developers is it's not as hard as you might think. It doesn't require you to spend a lot of resources to do it. You just need to follow proper user interface guidelines and provide labeling, and that's going to get you a long way toward accessibility. Katie and I have come to know a lot of app developers over the years of making the show, and, and we've had those conversations with them. And sometimes it's just ignorance. They didn't think of it or didn't realize it. And then they got an email from somebody who said, boy, it would really be nice if you'd support me. And then they go in and they find out that it took them all of an hour or two to really set it up. Right. And I think there are developers, too, that don't necessarily think of their products as being a tool that somebody with a disability might use. But people with disabilities use every single kind of app that anybody else would. I mean, there are obviously apps that are difficult to make accessible, like vi very visual games, but there are an incredible number of games that are accessible, both those that are sort of specifically aimed at audio users as opposed to video users. But there are a lot of games that are text-based that are accessible that are, that are just great. And often it takes 
a user or two or three or four saying, I really love your app. I've been reading great things about your app. Won't you please make it accessible? And that often works surprisingly well, and sometimes it doesn't. We receive the emails, so I, I imagine the developers must receive the emails, too, from people who say, I, I really, you know, you talked about this app on your show, and I, it sounded great, and I went to try it, but it wasn't accessible. So instead, I ended up using this app, which was accessible. So could you talk about this app next time? Uh, and we do a lot of the time talk about that. And so I would just say to the developer community out there, a lot of the time, you're, you're losing sales. Uh, if you're if you're not making your app accessible. So aside from making it accessible, just because it's probably it's not that hard and it's probably the right thing to do it. You also have to look at it from a profit motive that you're you're cutting a whole audience out of being able to buy your app. Yeah, because the people who use accessibility are going to find a Twitter client. They're going to find a mail client. They're going to find a, a book reading uh, tool. It should be yours. You know, if you make the best in class, you should also make the most accessible in class. I have a chapter in my book, which is nothing but third-party apps, and I organize them in categories. And I say that they're not put there because they're accessible. They're put there because they go- they're good, and they're also accessible. So I call out text editors and calendaring programs and tools that happen to be accessible, but that also really do a great job. And what goes unmentioned in there are the tools that don't do a great job and everybody has an example of something that they'd really like to use that is not accessible. And I'll give you a, an example, and it's kind of a, a frivolous, fun one, but it's an example nonetheless. So when uh, messages came out with stickers, a lot of blind folks want to use stickers. And a lot of stickers are not, sticker packs are not accessible because they haven't bothered to go and label the accessibility buttons. On the other hand, there are some sticker packs that are not only accessible, but they are ridiculously accessible. Uh, The Cookie Monster sticker pack is the most amazing thing because not only is it it accessible, but the accessibility labels speak in Cookie Monster language. So, (laughs) me eat big cookie. It's great. It's great. And it just, it does, that hardly takes any time at all to just make your sticker accessible. I want to hear your British butler, Siri, say that. (laughs) So do I. I'm going to do that later. (laughs) So, um, I, I guess you've got the developer's ear now. A lot of them listen to this show. What, how do they get started? So let's say they've been um, woefully negligent and have not made their apps accessible. Where, where should they put their time first? What, where should they devote their resources and what can they do to get started down this path and where can they get the most bang for their buck? Well, first of all, there are lots of resources in the Apple developer library and those are easy to find. So if you need to know specifically what uh, needs to be made accessible, what calls you need to use, that th- that material is available to you. And then the second thing I would say is if you start with voiceover, a lot of it is going to go out from there. Because as I said, if you make it compatible with voiceover, you are automatically going to make it compatible with switch control. So if all of your interface items are labeled, if all of your buttons don't just say button, sometimes you'll have an interface item that's labeled, but it just says button, 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 button is the worst thing a voiceover user can hear. Don't button, even if my British butler says button, 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 I don't want to hear that. Um, the next thing is, and it's, I, it's my personal pitch to some extent because I'm a, a person with low vision, but be concerned about contrast in your interfaces. So a lot of times people in terms of want to create something that's aesthetically pleasing. And so they might have text that is uh, transparent or that is not uh, high, does not highly contrast with the background. And that is difficult, even if you're using color filters or invert colors to try and read that stuff. Or you might have somebody who uh, makes their text very tiny and does not make it accessible to dynamic type, which is why I mentioned dynamic type, because that is the 
Apple hook that makes it possible for your text to be enlarged by the enlarged accessibility sizes and the other text size in, in, uh, uh, tool in settings. So you've first of all got to be compatible with the user interface guidelines that Apple provides in terms of accessibility. And then second, look at whether the contrast and the layout of your app is clean and clear. One of the things that Apple did, and it wasn't an accessibility enhancement per se, is but they made music and news easier to see. They made the text bigger, but they also made it bolder. I'm not sure if they changed fonts or if they just used a different weighting of the font. And they organized the interface a little differently so that it's easy to look at a screen on a large phone or on an iPad and find what you want. So a lot of it is just sort of, you know, design for usability. And what accessibility people typically will say is, if you do designs that are good for usability, you will automatically have accessibility benefits, even if you're not trying to do that. Yeah, it's easy to get too precious. I remember once I did a a revision at MaxSparky.com where I had this nice shade of gray on my text, but it's gray text on a white background. And I got an email from someone saying, I'm sure it looks beautiful, but I can't read it anymore. (laughs) Exactly. So now if you go, it's black text on white background and the stuff like that is, I think it's easy if you think about it, to fix, but but sometimes it's, it just needs to be on your mind. Yeah, and you might have a situation where you have an interface with a lot of contrast between different parts of the interface, but all the text is the same color. So, for example, you might have a sidebar that is very dark, but you might have a main body of the of your app that is light. Well, if I'm using a color filter or invert colors, that's going to mess me up because I don't have the ability to customize my interface so that I can see all of your screen. I have to flick in and out with accessibility shortcut or with a keyboard shortcut on the Mac so that I can see the main body of your app now. But when I want to see what's on the sidebar, I have to change my color preferences. And some apps handle that by using themes. Slack is really good with this. You can set the theme of your sidebar separate from the theme of your main text. I'm talking about on the Mac now, actually. Uh, But Themes and dark modes and other tools that allow the user to set their own contrast settings. You can give me all the settings in the world. If you want to create a particular look and it's not super accessible, I don't want you to do that. But if you're going to do that, give me some themes. Be like Twitterific on iOS. Be like Slack on macOS. And let me customize the heck out of my own uh, settings so that I can see your app the way that's easier for me to work with. Shelly, I want you to help us and tell us the problems that still remain to be solved. But let's talk about that right after this. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Text Expander. Stop wasting time typing things repeatedly. Subscribe to Text Expander. It is simply indispensable. There's a reason why Text Expander is the best option for repeated typing of text snippets on your Mac, iPad, and iPhone. The team behind Text Expander doesn't sleep. They are always adding new features. There are several I want to talk about this month. First, they've added a new Text Expander snippet keyboard. Using the snippet keys, you can save your most commonly used snippets as a separate keyboard on your iPhone and iPad. Just enable the keyboard, and then you can swipe between your snippets and select them by just tapping on them. For instance, I've got a snippet every time I do a conference call that lists the dial-in number and some other details. I've now saved this as a snippet key using this new feature in Text Expander, and I can send out the conference call details from my iPhone or my iPad just as easily as I can on my Mac now. 
The other new feature I'm really excited about is public groups. I know this feature has been in the works for a long time, and I'm really happy Smile was able to ship it. With public groups, you can subscribe to a public group of snippets that somebody created. For instance, there's one on there with brand names, which corrects the casing of common brands like Facebook. I've got a public group published already, and it's called Foreign Thanks. Using it, you can say thank you in languages other than English. For instance, you could type German thanks without a space, and it would type Danke. I started this a couple years ago, and I've had listeners and readers send me in all sorts of languages, ranging from Vietnamese to Klingon. If you want to get in on this, just head over to textexpander.com slash public groups and start subscribing. I'm going to be putting more groups up in the coming weeks, and if you've got a cool Text Expander group, I suggest you do that as well. Either way, Text Expander is still amazing. It still saves me a ton of time every day by allowing me to quickly insert text instead of repeatedly typing the same things over and over again. It continues to amaze me how the developers of Text Expander can find new and interesting ways to make this application more useful, more productive, and more fun to use. Head over to TextExpander.com to learn more, and thank you, Smile, for supporting the Mac Power users. Okay, um, you've you've been in this uh, pool pretty deep, Shelley. Um, where do we, as we stand here today, what needs to be fixed still? Where you know where is the work still to be done? I think I alluded to one thing that's a concern for me a little bit earlier. I feel like when innovation happens, like let's say with the the Touch Bar or some other brand new interface thing that happens, not only do we need to think about accessibility from the get-go, but there needs to be better communication about what the accessibility priorities are. And I know I'm asking a lot because we're talking about Apple here, and that's just not the yeah, way. Thank you. <laughs> that's just not the way they work. But I, it doesn't hurt to ask, you know. And I feel like if you're going to go to the trouble of promoting the terrific accessibility things that you've done and how it changes the way people are able to live their lives, it would also be helpful if, whether it's through a front channel or a back channel or however that needs to work, if there was sort of better messaging about yeah, we've got your back as far as accessibility, and then mean it. I, I know, Now, I have to hasten to add that I know that Apple does a lot of accessibility testing. There are a lot of people out there that they're getting feedback from, and I know they take that feedback. And I always say this. It sounds like something that's just thrown against the wall and that's not real, but Apple has an address, an email address, accessibility at apple.com. And if you experience problems with accessibility-related uh, tools in any of Apple's products, that's a place to write. If you have a bug, if you have a request, you're not always going to get a response. But I know lots of people who have gotten responses, and I know that material adds up. And there are people at the other end of that address reading it. And so if you're frustrated and you feel like there's something that you want that you're not getting, that's a place to start. Um, I think related to that is squashing accessibility bugs quickly because obviously there's quite a lot going on whenever there's a new iOS release and accessibility bugs happen just as bugs in, in almost every other kind of app or system happen. Sometimes those accessibility bugs actually cause serious problems and prevent people from using, for example, their Braille displays or their switch devices. And so there's a, a way in which those can be perceived as, you know, much more critical because you could prevent somebody from using their device by having an accessibility bug that's serious enough. So from the user's point of view, I would say you got to communicate with Apple and you've got to let them know about that. And from Apple's point of view, I think the more they do to reassure us with actual 
actions rather than with uh, videos, uh, that, that accessibility remains not only a priority at the high level, but at the nitty gritty level. I think that's going to be of benefit to everyone. There are little things I want. Everybody's got their own wish list. Um, I would like to be able to collect all of the display and zoom and text size settings that I like and sync those to all my devices via iCloud. I say this every time I talk about this topic because it's just like my pet one. That's my favorite one. But that, <laughs> seems, that seems like right in their wheelhouse, though. I mean, lately, that's they're trying to do that. So it seems like why not uh, you know, support you in that? Yeah. Um, David, we still can't successfully... Uh, sync our keyboard shortcuts. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. And keyboard short keyboard shortcuts are a big accessibility win as well. I mean, you know, text expander is very popular in the accessibility community. I bet it is. They, they, they can figure out syncing. Apple cannot sync the keyboard shortcuts. Yes, yes, exactly. No, I I think they've I think they've done a lot. I think uh there there are a lot of people me less than people I've talked to. There are people who really do want a true dark mode. So instead of invert colors, you actually have a dark mode that allows you to continue to see images and continue to see all the interface items, but have uh, dark backgrounds and and light text or light objects. And so there's there's nobody who really has done that properly. I, I argue with my Android friends about dark mode, and they indicate that Android does a better job of it. But I have issues in terms of the way they do fonts. So Nah. Um, but if Apple could make us a, a real, real and true dark mode, I, that would make me happy as well. Yeah, I thought we were going to get that with iOS 10. It seemed like it was coming. Maybe that one's still in, still cooking. And again, that's one that benefits everybody. There are an awful lot of people who don't use accessibility features who would love to have a dark mode. What about um, just like if we've got friends or family that that probably need some of these accessibility features, they haven't had anybody walk them through yet. A lot of Mac Power users, listeners are are the folks who kind of help people out with this stuff. Um, any advice on, you know, helping someone out, getting them started, figuring out which features work for the best for whoever they're helping? I, I think a lot of features for people who need some accessibility features but don't need a lot of them are related to vision. So I would say the first thing to do is poke around there in accessibility settings under the vision tab. Apple's done a few reorganizations of accessibility settings over time but a lot of the vision settings are collected together. And there are very some of them that are very simple, like toggles or in, toggles for bold text or uh, display accommodations like increased contrast and reduce white point that you can experiment with and see if they meet your needs. Obviously, there's real straightforward stuff like increasing or reducing the brightness of your screen. I mean, I want my screen really, really dark because too much light bothers my eyes. But the first thing I did when I talked to my mother who has age-related macular degeneration is I said to her, what's best for you? Does the screen need to be light or does it really bright or does it need to be dark so that not extra light comes in? And she said, I need it as bright as possible. And then I said, what about text size? Look at your email that you have open right now. Is that text size good for you? So one general piece of advice I could offer is make sure that you don't make assumptions about what the person you're helping needs. Ask them questions not about whether they want bold text or whether they want this feature or that toggle turned on, but ask them, what about the environment you're using right now is not working for you? And based on the answers you get, you'll figure out whether you need to increase, whether you need to teach them how to use Zoom, whether you need to teach them how to use um, increased text sizes, or whether they may need some of the hearing-related features or not. But but listen, that is something that anybody, whether they're uh, primarily using accessibility features or just beginning to use them for 
reasons that have to do with age or disability that's come on them late in life, listening is a huge part of actually being a good troubleshooter in general, but it's absolutely crucial to being a good accessibility helper. And I also would add that's a really great time to figure out where to map the accessibility shortcut. Once you identify what it is they need help with, maybe it's something that they don't need all the time. And that's where you get that triple tap in. Right. Well, I'll, I'll give you a tip on that. The Zoom feature can be added with a triple tap. But if you don't need Zoom all the time, there's actually an easier way to do that. You can turn Zoom on without having it active all of the time. And instead of using the triple tap to enable it with Zoom enabled as opposed to activated, you can do a, a three finger double tap and it will it will uh, two finger sorry, three finger double tap and, and drag to increase the zoom level. So you can have the benefit of that feature being there in the background without it getting in the way. And then you could map the accessibility shortcut to voiceover or to some other feature than zoom if you needed multiple features active. Oh, that's an excellent tip. And that you do that in the accessibility pane, preference pane. You go to Zoom, which is inside, go to accessibility preference, then go to Zoom, then turn Zoom on. And turning it on does not make your screen stuff, the stuff on your screen bigger. It just activates Zoom. And then you can set the settings. You can choose whether you want to use Windows Zoom or full screen Zoom. You can use follow focus, which is a feature that lets you zoom in on a field that you're typing in uh, and only zoom in on the field and not the keyboard so that you can actually see whether you're typing the character you want to type. You can do all those settings in advance. And then when you want to actually activate it, you can do the three finger uh, tap and drag to actually make what's on your screen look bigger. And then you can do the reverse to make it go back to normal size. Clever. I'm, I'm looking at it right now. I'm going to I know somebody in my life that needs this. So I'm going to get them set up in the three finger tap is a, is a great shortcut. Thank you. Any other tips for helping people get started? I think uh, some of the features that are really sort of uh, low trouble but high impact are bold text. Like if you have somebody who has any issues with uh, vision and iOS, start them by turning on bold text. They won't notice it unless they need it, if that makes any sense. And then also, again, screen brightness. A lot of people want it very bright. A lot of people want it not bright. And if you disable the auto brightness checkbox, people can, uh, from control center, make adjustments as they need them, or they can, um, you know, allow it to become brighter as, you know, automatically, but that's kind of up to their choice. And you can also use Siri for that too. You can say, make the screen brighter or make the screen dimmer and Siri will do that for you. On-off labels is one that I found has gotten a lot of mileage in my family, just for people who are either fairly novice iOS users or who have trouble telling which way that button is toggled. That will put a little green background uh, behind the buttons that makes it a lot easier to see whether a button is toggled on or off. That's an example of one of those features that iOS 7 gave us, which was either a bug or feature, depending on your point of view, because it made those switches harder to see. Button shapes is another one. Button shapes will create an underline under text buttons, not all text on your screen, but any text that happens to be a button, say the back button. And um, it, that it just makes it easier for people to, to find them, especially on large devices. I think like an iPhone or an iPad or a larger iPhone, sometimes it's hard for people to find their place and button shapes and on off labels help with that. Also, reduce motion, which you wouldn't think of as an accessibility tool, but it is in the accessibility pane. And what that does is make some of the animations a little less intense. So when you quit or when you quit an app, you go back to the home screen and that sort of zoomy effect that it does, that effect can be 
troublesome for some people, whether they have a disability or not. Or vertigo or something, yeah. Yeah, and the only disadvantage to that is it makes it impossible to do full screen effects in messages. So for me, it's a big trade-off because I like to turn on reverse motion. I'd like to turn on reduced motion, but I sure do like full screen fireworks. Actually, I believe that was a feature that was fixed in iOS 10.1. Oh, really? So I I don't think that reduced, because I I joke that I cannot stand all of those full screen effects that certain people on this podcast David, keep sending me because they know that I can't stand them. And so I I haven't seen Katie. Let's just for the record, I have not sent you any effects for at least two days now. Yes. And so I used to joke that I called that my curmudgeon mode, um, that I would turn on the reduced motion feature because I was a curmudgeon and didn't want to see all that stuff. And uh, it doesn't I've lost people have written in and told me I've lost my curmudgeon button now. I'm totally going to try that. I I have not. I have not because I've had it on. For a while, and then I turned it back off so I could send some fireworks to somebody. And I <laughs> yeah, you just do, do still have to have um, to make I think 3D touch enabled to access some of those features because some of them can only be accessed with 3D touch. But yes, curmudgeon mode is is no more sadly. So, well, Shelley, where can, you've given us a lot of good advice, but if people want to explore more, they want to learn more. Obviously, I put a link to to your excellent book in the show notes, iOS Access for All. What are some other pe- features that people should check out, whether they're looking for accessibility tips for themselves or for so- their loved ones? If you're blind or visually impaired, you have to start at AppleViz, which is a great compendium of tips and blog posts. They do great rundowns of what's new in every Apple operating system as it's updated. There's also a great uh, gallery of apps. So if you want to find an accessible this or an accessible that, after you read my book, go to AppleViz because they keep up with it as well. And they allow user comments so people will tell you, well, it's, it's mostly accessible, but it's got this sort of a problem or that sort of problem. And that's really helpful if you are not sure whether you want to buy an app because you don't know of its accessibility status. So if you go to AppleViz, you can probably find that. Uh, there's a guy in Australia named David Woodbridge who does these amazing podcasts. And a lot of them are posted on AppleViz, but he also posts them on his own site. And he, I think, like you guys, buys everything that Apple makes. And so when the Apple Watch comes out, he is on the job first thing, unboxing it and showing you how to use it from an accessibility point of view. And you also get to hear his lovely Australian accent. So I would absolutely recommend David Woodbridge. Um, There are a few books out there. People always ask me whether there is a good uh, Mac voiceover book because there are a lot of keyboard shortcuts that are not intuitive. Then I will tell you that the the most recent one and one of the best ones has been updated uh, not too recently. He, He last updated, I think, in October of last year. So it's El Capitan. I don't know if he's planning another book. But it's called Mastering Voiceover in the, on the Macintosh by Tim Smithen, and that's available in the iBook store. And it's done as a class, so you go through uh, tutorials and step-by-step guides. So it's actually aimed at teaching you voiceover, not just as a reference. Um, another one is Anna Dresner's book about uh, what, called Watching Without Looking. And it's uh, basically her 30, first 30 days as an Apple Watch owner. So it's written sort of as a journal more than a how-to but it's a really great resource. Anna's awesome. I, I know her and I really like her a lot. And she has updated that for Apple Watch 3, uh, Watch OS 3, I should say. Uh, oh, oh, and, and, there's a, and there's another great book about uh, switch control. And this one's available for free. It's called Hands-Free Switch Control on iOS. And it's by Christopher Hills and Luis Perez. And uh, Chris is probably the switch control for iOS expert out in the world. And so they've done a great little multi-touch book about how to... Uh, use and get the most from switch control. 
And also tell us about your podcast. I do a bunch of podcasts. I'm a podcast geek. Um, I do a show called The Parallel, and Katie has been on it. And it is a conversation between people who talk about technology, and some of them are accessibility-focused folks, and some of them are not. I usually get one of each together. I call it a tech podcast with accessibility sprinkles. So our goal isn't to talk about accessibility. Our goal is to talk about tech, and accessibility kind of comes up in the mix. I, I think we don't often talk together enough. We have accessibility folks over here and mainstream folks over here, and so my goal is to get us all together. I'm part of a podcast called the Accessibility Roundtable every two weeks, we get together and we talk about Apple stuff. And again, we are just as big Apple geeks and fanboys and fangirls as as y'all are. Um, and we sometimes remember to talk about accessibility, but mostly we just talk about our new Apple toys. And then I do a niche geeky podcast called Hollywood on the Radio, which is taking advantage of my love of classic film and old time radio. And so I tell you a little bit of history of classic film and how classic film in Hollywood connected to old time radio. So those are my podcasts today. Who knows tomorrow? There might be more. <laughs> there may be. Shelly, it, it's taken way too long for us to get you here, but uh, you were the perfect guest for episode 350 for us. And uh, we both thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed talking your ear off about accessibility. All right. Well, uh, thank you to our sponsors, Eero Marketplace and Smile, uh, Text Expander. Uh, if you've got any uh, thoughts or comments on this, please uh, send them in to us. We can get them on the live show or the feedback show. Uh, you can also send us a note to feedback at MacPowerUsers.com. Uh, Shelly, where can people find you other than the uh, podcast? My book is at iosaccessbook.com. You can buy the book from there or you can buy it from iBooks. You can also get a free sample chapter at that website and learn as much of, about the book as you want to. The ta full table of contents is there. And um, I can also be found at Brisbane.net, which is a compendium of all the crazy stuff I'm doing. Are you on Twitter? I am. I'm Shelly on Twitter, S-H-E-L-L-Y. Oh, you got a good name. I know, right? 2007. <laughs> <laughs> the book has a Twitter as well, iOS Access Book, but uh, I talk a lot more on the Shelly Twitter than I do on the other one. So, Excellent. All right, Shelly. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and we will talk to you all next time. Bye.